I know what I'm doing. I'm ready. <laughs> One of the things that I wanted to uh, start by talking about was timing. That, uh, <laughs> how important timing was to something like what these singing ambassadors were doing. But I also wanted to uh, call into question God's timing. I'm sure all of us have at one point or another, like I have for the last 30 seconds, wondered about God's sense of timing. He just seems to be a little off a lot of the time. He needs to check more carefully with our schedule books before he plans life's little traumas. Um, most of you are aware of Murphy's Law. If anything can go wrong, it will, and at the worst possible moment. Well, Brian uh, Fisher was telling me some of the corollaries to Murphy's Law. Corollary number one is Murphy was an optimist. <laughs> there are also corollaries that go along with some of our other uh, uh, occupations, some of the things we do with our time. There's one corollary that goes along with working on your car. That is, if you are using a tool on your car and drop that tool, it will roll to the exact center of the undercarriage of your car just beyond your reach. <laughs> also, if you are trying to put a nut on a bolt in a precarious position, if you drop that nut, it will cease to exist. <laughs> Not only that nut will cease to exist, but every nut like that in hardware stores for a radius of 50 miles will cease to exist. Like I said, we are all uh, intimately acquainted with, acquainted with Murphy's Law, that if anything can go wrong, it will, and at the worst possible moment. And it seems like, like we who are Christians uh, should have a, a different situation. I mean, we are on God's side. We want to do his will. So it seems like he should give us an inside track. He should kind of smooth things out for us but he doesn't. There's no such luck. In fact, it seems that uh, if, if something important is up, everything breaks down. I um, Usually, when I am preaching on Sunday morning, uh, my week prior to that falls apart entirely. I think probably a lot of it is self-induced just by my uh, fear of being up here. But a lot of things happen beyond my control. The car breaks down, toilet overflows, I get sick, all kinds of things. This last week, I set aside the last half of the week to prepare and uh, was getting, on Wednesday, was getting my monthly exercise. I was playing basketball with some guys. Went after a loose ball. Somebody else went after it, and their finger ended up in my eye. Yeah, it was no big deal. It hurt, but it was no big deal. Except the next morning on Thursday, I got up and the eye was swollen, almost shut, and it was red and bloodshot. It had gotten infected. So I had to spend Thursday in the doctor's office and get medicine, these drops to put in the eye. I had to spend the rest of the, the week studying out of one eye. So if I kind of freeze up on you, you'll know what's going on. Um, a friend of mine from Salt was telling me about an opportunity she had to share the gospel with a woman at work. Uh, this woman came up to her and said, you know, I've heard about the gospel, but I don't really know what it is. Would you explain it to me? Now, what kind of opportunity is that? We're always, you know, hoping for a chance like this. 
We, we'd love to tell people about the gospel. Usually, we're thinking, well, can I work it in the conversation? Or I don't want to be pushing and all these other things. And here, someone came up and asked her. So on, on their breaks, they didn't want to steal company time. On their break, they went to the normally deserted staff dining room. And for the entire time they were in there, one person after another came in, interrupted, sit, sit down and chat with them and leave. And another would come in. And for the entire time, was nothing but interruptions. Now, how frustrating. Sometimes it seems like God is working against us. I'm sure if I had been Jesus, I would have felt exactly that way in the incident that we're going to look at this morning. Turn with me to Luke 5, verse 17. Luke 5, 17. And it came about one day that he was teaching and there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem and the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing and behold some men were carrying on a bed a man who was paralyzed and they were trying to bring him in and set him down in front of him and not finding any way to bring him in because of the crowd they went up on the roof and let him down through the tiles with his stretcher, right in the center, in front of Jesus. Let's, uh, before we go on, think for a second about what's happening here. First of all, realize this is the beginning, or this is very close to the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. Jesus' public ministry lasted for three years. He had roughly three years to train his disciples to preach the gospel, to get the message out, to get it clarified, to clarify and demonstrate who he was. In short, he had three years to save the world. Now that is a rough deadline. Three years to save the world. In uh, Mark's account of this, uh, this incident, it says that Jesus was in Capernaum. In fact, Mark says he was at home. Apparently, when Jesus was teaching in Galilee... There was one house that he stayed in that people just knew as his home. Some people speculate that perhaps Mary had moved to Capernaum from Nazareth by, by then. But more probably, this was the home of, of Simon Peter. That's where Jesus stayed. And when word got out that Jesus was at home, people started showing up. They wanted to hear him teach. In fact, it says there were uh, Pharisees and scribes, teachers of the law, who had come from all over the region. In fact... Many had come all the way from Jerusalem, the capital of that country. Realize these are important people. These are the leaders of their, their, their society, the religious, and even to some extent the political leaders of the nation. And Jesus has the opportunity to share the gospel with them. It would be like you and, and me having an opportunity to share maybe with the governor or with the, the president and his cabinet some important people in our society, in our country. And Jesus is now getting the chance to share the gospel. In fact, Mark, in, in the first chapter of Mark, he talks about the fact that Jesus was going around throughout Galilee preaching the gospel, explaining to these people who God was, how to know him. And people were showing up from all over. Big crowds were gathering around Jesus. In fact, let me read a couple of verses out of, out of Mark 1. Don't turn there because I'm not going to stay long. But let me try to give some more of the, of the setting. It says, And the whole city had gathered at the door. 
And he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. And in the early morning, while it was still dark, he arose, went out, and departed to a lonely place and was praying there. And Simon and his companions hunted for him. And they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And Jesus said to them, Let us go somewhere else in order that I may preach there. For that is what I came out for. See, what happened was as Jesus was healing, Jesus, people came to him with a need. He saw that need and he had compassion and he healed and he cast out demons. But his word went out. Everybody came to see that kind of thing. And the crowds were, were gathering. So Jesus got up real early and he slipped out. Simon uh, and his friends went looking for Jesus and they said, Jesus, the whole town is here. This is great. We've got the place packed out. They're waiting. They're singing one more chorus. Come on. Jesus says, no, let's get out of here. Let's go someplace else where I can teach. You see, these people are here for the show. These people want some razzle-dazzle. They want to see people healed. But that's not what I want to do. That's not what I came out to do. Again, he, he, he was compassionate on those who need, needed healing. But that was not his strategy. That was not his priority. So what he has done is slipped off. And here in Luke 5, in our passage, he is finally getting the opportunity to do what he has wanted to do. He's finally getting the opportunity to do what he has planned for, what he has prayed for. And what happens? Jesus is teaching. He's explaining to these people just who God is and how they can know him intimately. Everyone, even the religious leaders, are hanging on every word. He's right in the middle of a critical point, and this was important stuff for them to get. I mean, when Jesus taught, it was important stuff. And right in the middle of this critical point, you notice as everybody starts looking up, shifting around, there's growing crunching noise in the ceiling. And pretty soon pieces of roof are starting to fall on people. People are getting up and mumbling, moving around, trying to figure out what is going on. If I was Jesus at that point, I think I would have blown up. I would have gone right through the roof. like that one. <laughs> I would have said, God, I'm finally getting to do what you sent me to do. I'm finally getting the opportunity to do what I'm supposed to be doing. We finally cleared out the interruptions and look what you do. Doggone it. But you don't get the impression that that was Jesus' response. In fact, I get the feeling that about this point he started to smile maybe even to laugh. This was, it was probably a, a, a pretty comic scene. You know, here were these religious leaders who had commandeered the places of honor, were sitting right up front center. And uh, Luke tells us that's exactly where the stretcher was coming down. Here are these stodgy, stern teachers of the law with all this plaster falling down on their head. They're standing up, looking at themselves indignantly with their hair and their robe covered with dust. And Jesus was probably enjoying that to no end. And here comes this man, lowered down on a stretcher, right there in front of Jesus. Jesus never seems to get flustered by this sort of thing. Over and over you see him interrupted by the needs of people. And he never responds with irritation or exasperation. 
Instead, he seems to receive these things with with grace, with, with humor and delight. You see, I think Jesus knew that his father was ultimately in charge of his agenda and that his father's plans were good. So as a result, he was able to accept these things from his father and to look with anticipation to see what neat opportunity God was about to open up. You see, Jesus knew that he and his father were on the same team and that it was every bit as much his father's desire for him to succeed as it was Jesus' desire. A few years, uh, oh, excuse me, C.S. Lewis made a, a profound observation. He said, The greatest thing, if one can, is to stop regarding all unpleasant things as interruptions of one's own real life. The truth is, of course, that what one calls the interruptions are precisely one's real life. The life God is sending one day by day. What one calls one's real life is a phantom of one's own imagination. You see, our our Father is not trying to sabotage us. He's not trying to defeat us. We are on the same team. And the things that he sends into our lives are intended to amplify the effectiveness of our lives. And intended to show his power and his love in our lives. It is in handling these things that we are most effective. A few years ago, Ron and Cherry Gonzalez were heading out on vacation, a much needed vacation. They were heading for uh, Hanford, California, where Ron grew up. They got about halfway there and the car broke down. Whole electrical system shut off. So they uh, called a tow and were towed into the garage and it became obvious that it was going to take some time. And now here they are, giving their life and time and energy to ministry, loving people, and they finally get a break. They finally get a chance to get away so they don't burn out and something like this happens. Thanks a lot, God. But they uh, didn't respond that way. They reasoned, God is on our side. He's not trying to ruin us. There must be something here. So while they waited, Cherry started a conversation with the wife of the mechanic, a woman by the name of Rosa, who who worked there in the office. And as they talked, Cherry got an opportunity to explain the gospel to her. And after the vacation, they began to correspond and talk more about spiritual things. You know, what a treat. What a delight. They could not have planned something more fun and refreshing for their vacation. God delights to give us these kinds of treats. And we so quickly forget that he is on our side. That he is delighting to surprise us with good things. That he intends to use us. That accidents don't happen in our lives. What, what a freedom and a relief to be able to begin to view the events, all the events of our lives as part of the strategy, part of God's plan to use us to help those who have no spiritual life, to help others 
find freedom and life in Christ. Let's get back to the passage. Um, Verse 20. And seeing their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees begin to reason, saying, Who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But Jesus, aware of their reasonings, answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins have been forgiven you, or to say, Rise and walk? But in order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, take up your stretcher, and go home. And at once he rose up before them, took up what he had been laying on, and went home, glorifying God. Rather than being annoyed by this interruption, Jesus responds with with compassion, and you get the feeling that he's more than a little bit pleased by their faith. So what he does is something totally unexpected. He forgives the man's sin. That's what God always does in response to faith. He surprises us. He reveals more of himself. He shows us more clearly who he is, what he's like, by meeting our deepest needs. See, these guys probably had no idea that Jesus could forgive sins. They they probably weren't even thinking in those terms. They had brought their friend there to be healed. But Jesus goes deeper, and he meets a deeper need. He forgives the guy's sins. And you don't get the feeling that this guy or his friends peering in from the hole in the roof were the least bit disappointed. Forgiveness of sins is far more fundamental to our well-being and to the the quality of our experience of life than physical healing. In response to the religious leaders' outrage at what would have actually been blasphemy if Jesus were not God, if he didn't have the authority to do what he said he was doing, you see, the, the religious leaders accurately assessed the situation. Jesus was claiming to be God, to have equal authority with God. If he hadn't been God, this would have been blasphemy. But in response to their outrage, Jesus asked the question, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or rise and walk? Now he doesn't say, which is easier to do. He says, which is easier to say? Because anyone can say, your sins are forgiven. In fact, today there's a lot of people saying, your sins are forgiven. A lot of psychologists, psychiatrists, preachers, philosophers, they say, your sins are forgiven. They don't count. They don't matter. They're not even there. But they have no authority, no power to forgive sin. Only God can actually do it. And Jesus does it. And in order to prove that he has this authority, he turns to the man and he says, I say to you, rise Take up your stretcher and go home. And immediately the man got up, picked up the mattress that had been carrying him, and he carried it home. Now, this wasn't a weak, feeble healing. This guy got up, he picked up this heavy mattress, 
mattresses, I don't know if you've ever tried to carry one. They're awkward. They're heavy. He threw it over his shoulder and he went home. Jesus proved he could do what he said. He proved he could forgive sins. And again, forgiving of sins was the greater miracle here. Now, now we have trouble with that. In our, in our materialistic society, most of us here still feel that physical healing is more important to one's life than spiritual healing. We may not say that, but we really do believe that. In our society, we often teach, or excuse me, treat doctors as if they were semi-divine. We look to them for answers for all kinds of things in life. We expect them to know all the answers. I have a friend in, uh, who's a physician who told me in medical school they taught him frequently wrong but never uncertain. A good motto. Frequently wrong but never uncertain. And we expect doctors to know all these things. Now, don't get me wrong. I appreciate doctors. They make an enormous contribution to our lives. And most of them deserve our appreciation and our respect. But they can only heal the body. Christ can heal the spirit. And ultimately, it's the condition of our spirits that determines the quality of our life, both in this world and the one to come. People, this is really a challenge to us. To take seriously what God has done. To take seriously the fact that he can heal paralyzed spirits. Our world is full of strong, healthy bodies that house miserable, frustrated, empty, dead spirits. You know, I think of somebody like uh, Johnny Erickson. Here was a woman who was injured in a, in, a, in a diving accident. She's paralyzed from her neck down. But she is so full of joy and life in the spirit. She would like to be able to walk, to hug, to get out of her wheelchair. But she said over and over she would not trade the life and ministry God has given her for any of that. My wife, Becky, who works with cancer patients, has discovered that the greater suffering for many victims of this disease comes from guilt and confusion, thinking that God is punishing them or has abandoned them. Well, Jesus speaks directly to that here. He is willing, he is able, he is ready to heal anyone's spirit who comes to him in faith. Let's take, take a look at, at, at faith this faith. It says, Jesus, seeing their faith, what did he see? Well, he saw four men who would stop at nothing to get their friend to Jesus. These guys carried this heavy, full-grown man uphill and down through streets and alleys just to get him to Jesus. When they got there, the place was packed out. They couldn't get in. So what did they do? They sat down, started grumbling and crying, got mad at God, got mad at each other, and went home. No. They legged the guy onto the roof. And when they got there, there was no way in. So they started tearing up the roof. They were that um, convinced 
that Jesus could do something for their friend. Not only were they convinced that he could, they trusted him. They believed that he would do something. They were willing to work hard carrying this guy around. They were willing to cause a disturbance. They were willing to suffer the irritation of the crowd and probably the anger of the guy whose house they were tearing apart. They were willing to do all these things because they were that convinced that Jesus could and would do something. They were willing to foot the cost for a new roof. Again, they trusted Jesus that much. Their dogged, determined persistence demonstrated their faith, their trust in Jesus, that he would, that he could do something about it. See, probably these guys had seen Jesus before. They had seen him healing people. They probably knew him to be tender and compassionate, unlike the religious leaders who were stern and and critical, condemning, irritable. And notice, they make no request on Jesus. As they lower this guy down from the ceiling, they don't make any demands. They just lay the guy at Jesus' feet, trusting that Jesus will love him. Jesus will do what's needed. Again, what an example for us. And I speak to myself here every bit as much to any, anyone else. If we see an accident, we'll call an ambulance. But when we see people all around us dying in darkness and confusion, will we call on God? Will we take them to Jesus? Or are we convinced that it won't do any good? Do we expect that he is unable to do anything or maybe unwilling, that he's too busy, he's too grumpy? Are we willing to go through the hard work, the effort of praying for people we know who are without spiritual life? Are we willing to go through the discomfort of raising an uncomfortable subject with them, recommending Jesus? You see, and that's all that faith requires. We can't fix them. We can't solve all their problems. All we can do is lay them at Jesus' feet. Trust that he will do what's needed. And we can tell them how we have found Jesus to be compassionate, to be forgiving, to be caring, able to heal. Ray Steadman, in his commentary on Mark, says, Nothing is more deadly in a church than the attitude of come weal or woe, our status is quo. Because the members are afraid to do anything that might be criticized. People, we cannot afford as a church to be so concerned with propriety, so afraid of doing something that might appear foolish or unsophisticated, so worried about offending that we sit around playing church. We sit idly by while our friends and our family, our work associates, our neighbors are suffering from spiritual paralysis while Jesus stands ready willing, anxious to love them and to heal them. Verse 26. 
And they were all seized with astonishment and began glorifying God. And they were filled with awe, saying, We have seen remarkable things today. The word uh, translated remarkable things is the Greek word paradoxa. We have seen paradoxical things here today. We have seen things that contradict what we expected. Things that contradict what we've always been taught. What did they see? They saw what God is really like. William Barclay says, Jesus is displaying the attitude of God toward men. That attitude is the very reverse of what men had thought God's attitude to be. It is not an attitude of stern, severe, austere justice. Not an attitude of continual demand. It was an attitude of perfect love. A heart yearning with love and eager to forgive. Barclay goes on to tell a story of a man by the name of Lewis Hind. He's a, a preacher from the last century. And Hind tells of the day that he discovered his father's love. He was a small boy sitting in church with his father. His father was a man who took his religion very seriously. And as the preacher droned on, Lewis began to fall asleep. And just as he was drifting off out of the corner of his eye, he saw his father's hand come up. And he expected his father would strike him for falling asleep. But instead, the raised arm wrapped around him and cuddled him close so that he could sleep more comfortably. And he said, On that day, I realized what my father was really about. Jesus, by the way he handled this interruption, this apparent frustration of his plans, shows us, demonstrates for us what our Father is really about. Apparently, no one remembers what Jesus was teaching there that day. It's not in any of the Gospels. But everyone remembers the lesson. This morning, we're going to be celebrating communion together. Jesus told us that this was a a time to remember him and what he did for us, that he allowed his body to be broken for us, his blood to be poured out for us, because purchasing the forgiveness of our sins was that important to him. He went all the way because he loved us that much and he knew that forgiveness of sins is that valuable. He was willing to die for it. But there's something strange and, and perverse in us. We are so unwilling, so reluctant to face the fact that we need forgiveness. We're unwilling to face our sins. And I think it's because we are so confused about what our God, our Father, is really about. We still believe, like the, uh, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law taught, that God is harsh and condemning, and that if we expose our sins to Him, He'll be critical, 
He'll reject us. He'll demand more of us. Again, Jesus contradicts all of this. The fact is that our Father is longing to forgive, longing to draw us to himself and comfort us and heal us. I'm going to pray now. And after, uh, well, I do, uh, I'd ask the uh, folks who are are, uh, going to serve communion to go ahead and come on up and sit down. After the prayer, I won't say anything. But what I would like you to do is to think through this lesson that Jesus taught this morning. To think through what our God is really about. His love, His compassion, His patience, His delight in our faith. That is, that we trust Him enough to come before Him. Now, I recommend you to be bold. Come before Him, bringing your sins. Lower yourself through the roof at His feet. He is compassionate. Especially if you have never before faced your need for forgiveness. Never before come to Jesus' feet. Let me recommend. I found Him to be compassionate ready to forgive. Bring yourself to him. Trust him and receive healing at his hand. As the bread is passed out, I would ask that you hold it and we will take the bread together. You are all welcome to join us in communion. You don't need to be a member of this church. You don't need to be a regular attender. The only thing that we do ask is that you prepare yourself By thinking through clearly just who your God is. Coming honestly before him this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we do get so confused about what you're like. That we do expect you to be irritated at us. To blow up at us. We do often think that you're working against us. We're afraid of you rather than realizing that it is your desire, even greater than ours, that we succeed, that we become whole, that we, that we be instruments of yours to love those around us. Lord, I pray for any here who are struggling, who are unable to face you because they're so confused about what you're all about. Just comfort them. Give them the ability to trust you. Give them the, the confidence that you gave these four men that you'll receive them with humor and gladly that you will forgive, that you will show yourself. Lord, we come before you this morning. Just uh, thank you that you allowed your body to be broken for us. We want what you purchased for us. Amen.